Hi everyone, this is the podcast of the Bali Center for Law and Social Policy, produced at the University at Buffalo. I'm your host and producer, Azalia Mohransyah. This episode, I have on the phone with me David Gerber and Bruce Tyronville, co-authors of Disability Rights and Religious Liberty in Education, the story behind Zobres v. Catalina Foothills School District. David is a University at Buffalo Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus and Director Emeritus of the University at Buffalo Center for Disability Studies. And Bruce is a Professor of History and Director of the All-College Honors Program at Canisius College. David and Bruce, can you tell us what is your book about and what draws you into this topic? Bruce and I have been concerned from a variety of directions in our teaching and in our publishing careers with questions that have to do with, on the one hand, disability, and on the other hand, First Amendment constitutional law in regard to religious liberty and state neutrality in matters of religion. The Zobris case, which we've written a social history of, brings together both of these directions in one complicated lawsuit filed by people who lived in suburban Tucson, Arizona in 1988. And it was compelling for us because of the nature of the problems in law that came together in the one case. It was clear also that there was no one right position, I think. And so it was, as David alludes, it was a a complicated case and we tried to understand it on its own merits. I would say secondarily that uh, I've always been interested in the division, the political division, the ideological division between those who uh, sought reforms, sought to try to address problems in society, including those dealing with uh, disabilities, which was uh, a new area of the law and jurisprudence. And uh, so it was fun to sort that tangle out. And uh, I should mention parenthetically that I identified with the case in particular because uh, I myself have uh, significant hearing issues, which were a significant part of the case and our understanding of what was going on with that family. One of the things that particularly compelling about cases like the Zobris lawsuit is that they involve a conflict of rights. They're rights claims on both sides of the issue. And that's one of the factors that makes this particular case, uh, among many factors, very complicated. At the heart of the case, however, are uh, perfectly ordinary kind of American middle-class people who are struggling to find ways to gather the resources together to educate their son, who is profoundly hearing impaired. And it mattered to us to take a kind of third element or direction of our analysis, the issue of why of ordinary people come to a position where they file lawsuits and pursue these lawsuits to the highest court in the land where there's many disincentives to doing so. So the social history aspect that you allude to that has to do, that makes the book seem at times like a novel or like a narrative that is out of real life 
uh, has to do with this perspective of asking questions about why ordinary people file lawsuits and why they pursue them. What we learned, of course, is that the Zobras are far from ordinary people. And uh, particularly uh, Mrs. Zobras, Sandy Zobras, is a woman of really uncommon force and direction. And she became an outstanding figure in the context of our understanding this case. Remember also that uh, from the Zobras' point of view, Wright was on their side. This was uh, a simple matter, not a complicated matter. And so they expected to be provided a, a Stein interpreter uh, in a private or non-public school, the same way that Jim Zobrist had received one in the public school system when he had been part of that. So they don't really uh, appreciate how difficult or involved uh, this fight is going to be. They believe that the First Amendment uh, guarantees them freedom of religion, that is to send their son to a Catholic school. Uh, and uh, they noted the laws that have been passed, uh, what came to be called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, provided for accommodations and assistance. And uh, for them, it was uh, an open and shut matter. Uh, they don't realize how many years it's going to take, the costs involved, uh, and uh, the unlikelihood that they would even get a hearing uh, at the uh, Supreme Court level. You mentioned that the Zobris thought that this is going to be a simple case. What made it complicated? I think it's important at the outset to understand that, as Bruce said, uh, the Zobris felt quite strongly that the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act was on their side. What turns out to be the case was that while that law spoke strongly to providing resources for children with disabilities in K through 12 education, it spoke most strongly to students pursuing education in public schools. The issue of students getting resources who were in religious schools ran right up against a complicated long history of adjudication of the First Amendment and the issues of state neutrality in education. So, and that matter was not addressed directly or explicitly, certainly clearly in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And in fact, in the Supreme Court decision in the Zobrist case, the minority shrugged its shoulders, raised its hands and said, do we really know what the law says? Right up until that level, there was confusion on, on uh, that question. And further, the, uh, the minority, the dissenters in the Zobrest case felt there was no need to adjudicate this matter at all because of what's called the avoidance doctrine. And that is, uh, the Supreme Court should try to avoid constitutionally-based decisions if it doesn't have to. So from, let's say, Justice Harry Blackmun's point of view, he wrote the intent, there was no need to get into this. And the majority simply was uh, interested in moving into an area that need not have been decided. I should point out further that the uh, people who brought the case, the petitioners, who brought the case, the school district, they uh, did not 
bring the matter of the law to the court's attention. And so that was a huge mistake. Um, and so it was adjudicated on the basis of uh, the First Amendment only. And uh, that uh, Justice Rehnquist, who wrote the opinion, decided was uh, in favor of the Zilbrest. And so the signed uh, interpreter was permitted to be paid for by the state. I think Bruce raises a very important point, which is that the Supreme Court, which we associate with interpreting the Constitution, uh, really doesn't go out of its way to take cases where fundamental questions under the Constitution have to be interpreted. The court exists to create stability in law, among other things. And if in every case it takes up, it's dealing with first principles, the possibilities of it contradicting itself, of a number of different stories running simultaneously on what the Constitution actually says, increase. And there's a long tradition of believing the more those difficulties increase, the worse it is for the stability of the political system and the system of government in the country. How does this case affect the future? One never knows how it is that Supreme Court decisions are going to form precedent for, the few, for future decisions. The Zobrist case itself was looked at by uh, strict separationists, people who believe in a, in a wall of separation between church and state, as a uh, sort of chink in the wall, a, uh, a dent in the wall. And I don't think it has been used that way. There have been several cases, however, in which Zobrist did form explicitly a precedent for lessening the tension between church and state. The case hasn't come up recently in a number of Supreme Court decisions explicitly that have moved in a more serious and direct way to take down what the metaphor is, the wall of separation. But there was one case in the 90s in particular in which the Zobrist case was a significant precedent for the court's decision. Let's just acknowledge that uh, the Zobrist decision was part of a number of cases that have been coming down, that came down the pike uh, before the Supreme Court to seek accommodation or non-preferential treatment for uh, religious schools. And in that sense, uh, it's part of a gathering momentum, uh, the part of those uh, who believe that there was no real reason no constitutional reason, that is, that people who send their children to non-public schools, including religious schools, couldn't get benefits. So uh, the court has been opening the door or more than denting the wall of separation. They've actually created a hole through it, if you like, or uh, pulled the wall down, whatever metaphor you want to for some time, uh, the court has now enunciated certain principles uh, that I think can guide it. And Zobrist is part of that uh, general movement to figure out how to provide some sort of assistance without going too far. There's the rub, of course. What's too far? 
but the Zobras, the, in the Zobras, the court, William Rehnquist argued that there is no real harm uh, in what is happening here. The real beneficiary is not a religious institution, but a family who has a, a disabled son. And so it can be permitted. And as I say, Dobras didn't start this school of thought in the law, but it certainly continued it. What are the main takeaways of your book? Well, I think one of the uh, takeaways is the amount of strength of character and resolve that people have to have to pursue these uh, ultimate kinds of issues. Um, the Zobrist lawsuit, it wasn't uh, an auto accident or a conflict with a neighbor about uh, a barking dog. These were very complicated questions of law. And the pursuit of these questions required tremendous resolve over a period of years. One of the takeaways is, if we're asking why do people file lawsuits, one of the insights derived from that is the difficulty of doing so on complicated issues and the necessity of having a strong resolve in pursuing them. I would add that uh, our book tries to reveal what it is like to be deaf in a hearing world. And, you know, in the last couple of generations, we've gotten more comfortable with uh, people who have serious hearing impairment. But uh, keep in mind, this was uh, not something that most people were familiar with and not used to making accommodations. So that's very much part of our story, too. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make for people who will be listening uh, into this podcast. In addition to the conflict of the areas of law and the conflict in law between two different directions that law takes, part of our story and a large part of our story is the Zobris struggles to provide a education for their son the changes of schools that they made, the experiments with a variety of methodologies for deaf education that these schools suggested to them. And the intensely sort of the intimate private world of family in which these decisions were made. So I think that uh, when some of the uh, book reads like a novel, it's those parts where we narrativize the family struggles from the family up, uh, as it were, in a perspective that sort of constitutes the heart of that deafness uh, narrative for us. We couldn't have written the kind of book we did without the cooperation of the principal character in the story. So, uh, you know, we had the complete cooperation of the Zobrest family. We had the cooperation of attorneys. Uh, or the uh, children of the attorneys involved in the case. We had access to the the teachers. Uh, We saw various, uh, all the buildings where um, uh, Jim Zobrest went to school. So we had splendid cooperation and it's that kind of thing that allows us to tell the details uh, that enliven an account such as this. One of the uh 
positive elements of having a cooperativeship was that uh, interviews that we did. Um, we spent a good deal of time in conversation with one another about the meaning and testimony of the people we interviewed, the in their testimony, um, and um, tried to find ways to satisfy a de our desire to be as accurate as we could out of interviews that, you know, took the form of ordinary conversation where people didn't parse their language necessarily carefully. Uh, another thing was that we went back to the people we interviewed, particularly the Zobras, on occasion after occasion in writing the book to make sure that we had the details correct. It turned out even after all of that collaboration and all of that uh, circumspection that uh, we found a, a few very minor errors in the published version that we're seeking to correct. They're very minor. But the fact is that this kind of in-depth research effort with the materials that we use, particularly oral history interviews, is a very complicated matter of interpretation. Anything else you would like to add? Well, I'll say this. Uh, the Supreme Court essentially finesse the question of disability in the Zobrest case, preferring to focus on the church and state issue rather than disability. And, and that was uh, disappointing for those who are disabled and who look for the, uh, wanted the court to address that more directly. In the wake of the decision, a professor at Gallaudet University, the university in Washington, D.C., that uh, has a hearing impaired and deaf student body, entitled an article that he wrote, uh, what they don't know might have helped us. What he meant by that was that the court, without seeking to find out too much about the nature of the Individuals with Disability Education Act, made a decision which nonetheless was going to profit some people with disabilities. That was David Gerber and Bruce Dyrenfield, co-authors of Disability Rights and Religious Liberty in Education, the story behind Zobris v. Catalina Foothills School District. And this has been the Policy Center for Law and Social Policy podcast, produced at the University at Buffalo. For more episodes, please visit our website, buffalo.edu slash policycenter, and follow our social media on Facebook and Twitter, at Baldi Center. Until next time, I am your host and producer, Azalia Muhanka.